Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. On this podcast, we will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Windy City Historians podcast. Episode 2, Finding the Place Called Chicago. Sponsored by Rapunzel, R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy across the board. Offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Rapunzel, a safe way to play and learn about financial markets for you and me. So, Chris, <laughs> I, I, I got to confess, I, this must be my Catholic upbringing coming out. I, I lied at the end of episode one. Do I look like your priest? Patrick, you and know, do I look like Father Marquette? Subbing in for Father Marquette or something. I thought we would be able to get the Swenson interview in the second episode. However, as I got through it, there's just so much there. Two's not going to be enough. Too ambitious? Yeah, I, he, he dropped so much history on us. I couldn't get it crunched down into another episode without leaving a whole bunch. I mean, it's like having a five pound bag and 10 pounds of, you know what? Or maybe a better analogy would be the fire hose of history. It's a flood. Like the 12 foot flood that Father Marquette experienced. It topped and covered the continental divide. And there's, (laughs) there's more here. Flood of the portage. Exactly. Exactly. So we spilled over into a whole new watershed and a third episode. So, or to stick with the maritime uh, references, like they said in Jaws, we're going to need a bigger boat. That's right. <laughs> you are going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> so this will be episode two, the place called Chicago, and then we will have a third episode, which will follow, and you came up with a name for that? Herbs and Orto. Yes, and we will reveal that episode next month. And I think it's also good, Patrick, because there's so much information that is thrown at at us and the listener, and we've talked about this, you you really need time to process it and think about it. Right. Because Swenson has flipped the paradigm here. He has. He's taught us a whole new origin story for Chicago, and we hope that putting it in some bite-sized packages of about an hour each episode will will make it a little more palatable. Yeah, I think that's the way to go and and I think that it is a lot of information and so I I'm all for it. So, Father Marquette, forgive me. I'm sure he would forgive you. <laughs> all right. So, well, let's get to get to this episode. Patrick, I think we should summarize and recap. The first episode, who was first? Changes Chicago history. Entering this conversation with John Swenson, we learned Nicolette, Jean Nicolette was the first European to visit Chicago. That goes back to Chicago's identity with Marquette and Joliet. It maybe should be Nicolette. And Swenson finds the Southern Portage, the area that 
Joliet and Marquette were talking about. The place Jutel refers to, where Marquette was visiting, where LaSalle visits later, the landmarks all match. A southern portage that we didn't even consider for most of the history. Assumptions were made it was a northern portage. The Michigan Avenue Bridge way yeah. was the way that they came, and Swenson demonstrates clearly that was not the case. That tells us Marquette and Joliet may never have come through what we now know as downtown Chicago and past the Michigan Avenue Bridge. I think clearly they didn't. Wow. It's all wrong. Man. There's books, I mean, hundreds of books, thousands of books probably that reference Marquette and Joliet incorrectly now. Which need to be dumped off the Michigan Avenue Bridge (laughs) into the Northern Portage because it's wrong. Well, don't tell Friends of the River. They'll get mad because you're polluting the river. And my Midway book, by the way, mentions the Northern Portage too, so... Shame on me. Oh, I, my Chicago River Bridges book. I know I talk about this portage, and I yeah. use a map that is not real helpful now. <laughs> so this is huge, folks. This is major history. But Man. we're not alone. Everybody who studies or uh, teaches Chicago history has been teaching it wrong. And at the end of the first episode, Swenson he says, if you know where the portage is, and you read Marquette's words, you'll he tells know, you. He tells you where he is. Where, where this place, Chicago, is. Right. So this basically concludes our first episode. Who was first? Well, we know that now. It's Nicolette. It's Nicolette. And sets up our next episode. The second episode will make Chicago history because John Swenson will tell you the origins of the place, Chicago. As a matter of fact, we owe a debt to Father Marquette yeah. because he's the guy. In his report, you can figure out, if you know where the portage was, Yeah, Father Marquette could tell you where he was, and that was the place the Indians called Chicago. He was briefly stationed up at the the Holy Spirit mission, which was, I think, on Madeline Island, which is opposite Mayfield, Wisconsin. Mm. Madeline Island is a big island, and when you take the ferry across from Bayfield, you land at La Pointe. Yes, I've been to Madeline Island, uh, the Apostle Islands up there. Yeah, so, yes. and they call it La Pointe. Well, the French, when they set up the mission, they were at La Pointe. Mm. I think that's where they were. Marquette was there briefly, maybe a year, something like that, in 1669. Mm-hmm. And someplace in the document, it says Marquette had an Indian slave boy who was in Illinois. There are Illinois Indians that are coming up north and bringing their furs. And then Marquette writes, the Indians, the Illinois people that visited him said, we'd like you to come and visit us. And and he interpreted that as a come and evangelize us. I, I think they had commerce in mind. Right. Like the guns and liquor. Yeah, more mundane. Uh, it, it definitely. They weren't thinking about being saved. <laughs> well, you know, the, the French suspected that the Indians kind of understood God. But anyhow, you think you're right, but you're wrong, and we're going to tell you why. All right. He decided that he wanted to evangelize the Illinois people. So he focused on getting information about the Illinois people. Mm-hmm. His mission, his self-assigned job, 
was to evangelize the Illinois people. Right, right, as a priest. As a matter of fact, it became an objective of Joliet as well. Because Marquette and Joliet had advanced information. Joliet himself was a trader. His family were traders and had been out in the upper country quite a bit. Joliet found a lot of records and compiled them all. Unfortunately, all of Joliet's papers were lost. He got almost all the way back to Montreal and there's some he, rapids, he, right? He tried to Montreal, run the rapids right? yeah. and his canoe capsized. He he darn near drowned and his records were all lost and everything. So Yeah, because he nearly lost his life, let alone all that's the right, records. That's right, that's right. What happened was that Joliet and Marquette both did leave some accounts of their travels. There were a lot of records back in Canada, yeah. some of which have survived. But anyhow, Joliet, being a businessman, and then Marquette wanting to know how to find the, the Illinois people who are his target population. These are his, this is his field for evangelizing. So how do you find these people? Well, he found out because the Illinois people coming and visiting him at the Holy Spirit Mission up at you know, Madeline Island. Now, when the French got here in Chicago in 1673. And that's and, Marquette and, and Joliet. Yeah, and they had information from this map. made in 1640. They call it the Taunton map because it was found in a British archive in the city of Taunton in England. How it got there, we don't know. The principal source of information on this was Jean Nicolette. Nicolette is here 40 years before Marquette and Joliet. And this was the research they did before they left. Yes. Right. Yes. You don't pull over your canoe and just ask for directions, right? (laughs) (laughs) But anyhow, Marquette and Joliet, they had like two canoes. Oh, yeah. And they were loaded with trade goods. Right, right. Because when you met Indians... You wanted to give them something to show you were a nice guy. Mm -hmm. And also to make sure that they would let you go past their village. When they were coming up the Illinois River, and they knew how to come up the Illinois River because they had this information. Yeah. Their documents have been lost, of course, but they knew how to get here. Because if you look at the map, rivers are winding and you could get lost. Sure. And getting lost means... Death, potentially, yeah. It could be... It's pretty serious. Yeah. So then, you know, one of the other little stories that we often tell about Marquette and Joliet is that the Native Americans taught them on their way back from Voyage of Discovery up to go up the Illinois. The problem is there are no such words in the documents. So historians have just taken a big leap of faith and said that they got instructions when they were down on the Mississippi River, down at the mouth of the Arkansas River, which originates in Leadville, Colorado, right? Hmm. I've been there. It's been despoiled by a lead mine. Yeah. Well, anyhow, no. So the evidence, when taken all together, seems to indicate a couple of the voyageurs in the party probably stayed behind in 1673. And we know who they are. 
Moreau and Roussel, and they stayed behind with some of the trade goods that they yeah. brought. So it's only an inference. Right. But they must have traded for furs because the next spring they came up north with furs. Then it was known furs were coming up from the Illinois country. Marquette gets back to the mission at St. Ignace. Off and on, he's sick, and his superiors say, no, we're not going to let you go out in the woods again. And he says, i got to see the, my children, the, the Illinois. They finally said, okay, okay, kind of like you're on your own. So Marquette comes back with these two guys, Largelier and Portorette, and Portorette had not been here before, but had been on other trading expeditions and also Largelier, whom had been on the expedition in 1673, who turned out to be very important. He, he became a Jesuit donné. Which means what? Unpaid, almost like a lay brother, but not really. I don't think he ever took any kind of orders. He was... Educated by the Jesuits. Oh, boy. Yeah. He was already educated. He could, was already literate. Yeah. Okay. But he became... Indispensable. Oh, to oh I, I love this guy because, and I'll tell you why in a moment. <laughs> Marquette's journal of his, his second trip, and he's dying by inches. And, and occasionally he gets well enough and strong enough to write down a few things. And hey, he's telling you where he is to the best of his ability. It may be kind of vague because, you know, mm-hmm. but then. You figure out, and then when you know where the portage was, when you figure out where the portage was from the geography. So they come down to Chicago, and they get to Calumet Harbor when all the animals are coming, and and his companions kill some deer and turkeys and so forth. They're, they're well fed. Marquette and his companions go up the river, And I figure that I know where he was, although he doesn't say it. He was at Chicago. Chris, when Swenson says Chicago, he's not referring to the city of Chicago. You mean the city of pizza and Italian beef, that place? And no ketchup on a hot dog, even though I do. That's sacred site. (laughs) Right. He's, he's talking about the place the Indians called Chicago. Chicago. Right. The word that derives from the wild onion. The, the ramps. Not the yes. wild onion. He, he busted me on that. All right. right. Shows Chicago. O-U-A. Yes. So it's the three of them, and they're wintering. They're probably staying in Indian huts because yeah. they describe being in, the word is caban, cabin. Which, oh, it's a hut. It was something yeah. that was already there. Yeah. They didn't have to build themselves anything. Marquette wanted to, see, his objective was the, the great village of the Kaskaskia, which is at Starved Rock. Yeah. That was the big, that was a population center. So everything is frozen over, and there's a foot of snow, and the hunting is terrible. So there isn't a hell of a, a lot of meat supply. And so he gets there on the 4th of December, 1674, somewhere between the 4th and the 11th. 
these guys are, are at this location and his guys are going back and forth. And then he sends word, one of his associates, to these guys, these two Frenchmen who were already there, Moreau and Roussel. He says, go tell these guys I've arrived. How did he know they were there? Well, <clears throat> sure, he knew. Because they'd been left there from the previous year. They stayed behind. They stayed behind. Well, all these trade goods, man, you're not going to go back to headquarters with a canoe full of trade goods. How come you didn't sell this stuff? Right. (laughs) Right? That that pays for the adventure. This will will pay for the the whole deal. Uh, Roussel was a surgeon. He had been a surgeon in the French army. And there's a passage in Marquette's diary about the surgeon coming back to help him when he's right. had a sickness that winter. Well, right. he brought him some food. Right. But anyhow, and also La Toupine the Mole, who was, was a nickname for Moreau, who had been, we know for sure, was on the expedition. Roussel probably joined the expedition later. Mm-hmm. He didn't sign the document, mm-hmm. uh, the, the agreement, but he, he was hired later. Somebody dropped out and they hired Roussel instead. A very interesting character and a bit of a thief. <laughs> but he knew the languages and went to work for LaSalle later and was his interpreter briefly. Marquette, he, he's telling you where he is. At one point, he says he's camped two leagues from the portage. Yeah. Do you think he did that portage down through Lake Calumet and the various rivers you talked about? Well, he had to. Okay. He had to because you go across the, the Chicago Portage at Madison, yeah. right, get into Hickory Creek, then it's about 18 miles, something like that, into the Des Plaines River, and then you go down the Des Plaines like about 12 miles, and you're at the Forks okay. where you join the Kankakee, and then it becomes the Illinois River. Yeah, And there was always a, a village at the Forks. What Marquette is telling us is that was his objective. I I won't go into all the details. I can just say that I found that Continental Divide, again, down between Frankfurt and Madison. Mm. There is a map of the Hickory Creek watershed. Yeah, It's based on flood maps, I think. If you look closely at the map, you can see there's this little divide, and it works out to be between Frankfurt and Madison. Yeah. It was a very subtle divide, and Joliet said it goes through the prairie. And Joliet didn't mention the lake, see, at the portage, whereas on the northern route there was Mud Lake. Yeah. The Oak Point Lake. Right, right, because he said, what, just a league or league and a half of a short Well, Joliet said that the portage was a quarter of a league, which works out to be six-tenths of a mile. Mm. Then he said, you know, it would be easy if you just cut a canal through this divide. Yeah. You'd have a continuous water route from Lake Erie to the Gulf of Mexico. And connect the two watersheds, yeah. Which was, boy, oh, boy, that's a way to get all the riches of the the Midwest back to France. Right. To our great profit. <laughs> In Marquette's narrative, he wasn't making daily entries. Of course, see, he was dying of amoebic dysentery. There would be long intervals between his entries in his little journal. It would be maybe four weeks apart. Then in the spring, when they're getting ready to go 
to the big Indian village at Starved Rock. And he gets a little bit more information. So and it's like the 29th of March in 1675, it came a thaw. Yeah. And the ice all went out. Yeah. And like really in a, in a rush. And the ice and the water flooded in, mm-hmm. flooded the river where he was camped because he's in a floodplain. Yeah. They had to put their stuff in a tree and they had to climb up on a butte. He uses the word butte, yeah. his word. French word for small hill. Isolated, an yeah. isolated hill. Right. Yeah. Right. Like we think of the Western buttes, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah. He could have used a different word, is my point. That would be the word in French that you would use to describe this construct. Okay. The the French word could mean either natural or artificial okay. feature. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Which you can find by looking up the old French dictionaries, which are online. B-U-T-T-E. Yeah. Yeah. He spells it, I think, B-U-T. But, you know, he didn't write for a living, so that's okay. <laughs> I'm not a good speller either. Well, he wasn't from Butte, Montana either. <laughs> I've been there. Yes. I, I've been there. Yeah. So he and his companions they had to scramble onto this Butte, which I call it the Marquette Mound. Yeah. I mean, why not? Right. <laughs> sure. Right. He's the guy. Yeah. He's he the guy there. that identified it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to take his word for it. I'm going to give him the credit. So I, Father Marquette, God bless you. So where exactly is Chicago in this context? There is an old railroad right-of-way, and it ran from Joliet to wherever. Then when the railroad was abandoned, it ultimately became a bike trail. So it's called the Old Plank Road mm-hmm. Trail. Mm-hmm. The portage was kind of between Cicero and Ridgeland. Avenues. In Matson, Illinois. At the portage, and I could show you the map, mm-hmm. you can see it that shows how big these rivers at the flood stage, how oh, much yeah. water was in the river. And you can see the portage is still there. Mm-hmm. And you can see that the floodwaters don't quite cover up the portage. Mm-hmm. So, Marquette, one number that's in his text, uh, the water on the other side of the portage had risen 12 feet. Wow. Wow. That's a lot of water. If you look at the topography of the river just upstream from his camp, the the east branch of Butterfield Creek, which starts way the hell out on the prairies out by University Park, and all of this water that is all of a sudden going to be freed up. So Patrick, just interject here to say that when Swenson talks about this 12-foot rise of water, this is a significant flood. Yes, and it's only possible on that southern portage route. He showed us the flood maps, and there's enough terrain there that you can get a 12-foot rise in water levels. Because if you had a rise of 12 feet, in the topography of the northern route, that would be a, a lake. Yeah, that would be basically almost impossible yeah. because it would flood right. on that northern area around the Chicago River and the Des Plaines. 
that you you couldn't possibly get 12 feet, I don't believe. There would be a tremendous amount of water. Unless it was something Armageddon-like. Because the northern route is as flat as a pancake for 13 miles from the lake to summit. Right. Which isn't really a summit. And there's no hills to speak of. Whereas on the southern route, you could have the water rise 12 feet. And the hills would look like islands. And I believe that Marquette described that topography. And again, for those who know the area, we're talking basically the Lincoln Highway. Yes, Cicero and Ridgeland is that area. Interstate 57 cuts through it. And State Route 30 is right near there. And then what John read to me also, looking at those French documents and translating for me the other day when I visited, Marquette and his companions dragged their canoe across the portage. You mean they got out of the canoe, they kept the goods in the canoe, and they pulled it or pulled it across the, the, right. the portage? You know, imagine these are birch bark canoes. If there was any land there, they wouldn't have dragged them across the land. It would have destroyed them. So yeah. it meant that there must have been enough of a flood that there was at least a few inches of water between yeah. the two watersheds and continental divide. Yeah, and that was way better than having to unload and carry Absolutely. For half a league. Yeah, I mean, I'm just as lazy as the next guy. I wouldn't want to carry. And and imagine, too, this is March, so the water's cold. It's wet. Yeah. I mean, it was bad enough that they had to get probably ankle or knee deep in water yeah. to do this. Uh, but at least then they didn't have to ferry everything back and forth to get across the portage. They could just drag their canoes. Yeah, they're not wearing boots from L.L. Bean. <laughs> no. Right, they're wearing moccasins. Or they're not wearing waders either. Right, so this was a, a mucky dirty, cold thing to do, but, not pleasant. But passable, you know? They, yes. And they stopped and camped after, and I think they stayed for a couple of days at what's now considered Skunk Grove, and there was usually an Indian village there. And Marquette says in his account, according to Swenson, that one of those voyageurs from the 1673 trip was coming back up Hickory Creeks with furs to take them to trade while they were there, and they met on that western side of the portage and advised him that he's going to get his feet wet if he continues on. And so he puts his goods on the hilltop, caches them, I think was the word that they used, and later goes ahead and crosses the portage. So it's an important confirmation that John kind of passes over that he's on the right track. Right. So this is just another description that was ignored for whatever reason by previous historians. Exactly. Again, original documents are key. Right. Because at one point he says he's camped two leagues from the portage. Yeah. And that is critical because you've got to know how long is a league. People really have to understand that. Is that this. a distance you can walk in an hour? Or what no, is no, it has nothing to do with that. Okay. It's a distance you can measure. It's a surveyor's measure. Mm-hmm. It was the official distance measurement in New France by royal decree. For example, King Louis XIV, the 14th, grand document. I've seen a microphone, and it's got the royal seal on it, and the whole nine yards. <laughs> and he is granting the Fort Frontenac and surrounding land to La Salle. And he says... I'm giving you 
so and so many leagues of land of 2,000 toises. Now, what is a toise? Is like a span or a pace. Like an arm span. Uh, like or a pace. Okay. It, it's approximately six feet. Hmm. By law in France, and I looked this up, in 1668, the king said a toise is exactly this much. And then they made a replica of this distance, this length, which is about six and a fraction feet, in cast iron, and they hung it up on a palace in Paris. So, so that was the standard. So you, uh, that was your standard. <clears throat> that was your standard, and it works out to be 1.949 meters. Hmm. Pretty darn close. You can convert that. It was simple arithmetic. You can convert that into miles, and it's 2.422 something miles. So let's say two, 2.4 miles, mm-hmm. not three miles. There is a difference. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if your distance is important, yeah. yeah, especially if you're buying real estate. Oh, you know it. I've read enough surveys in my time. I just wanted to say, he said it was two leagues. We're describing it. Yeah. Did you find in your research that as a Jesuit, his scientific background was was very sound, that he would describe things in great detail? Yes. See, the guys that he was with, Largelier and Porterette, had plenty of experience out in the woods. What these guys learned Mm-hmm. They had to learn how long is a league. Couldn't be casual about it. No, sir. It's the difference between life and death. Right. But isn't it interesting, I mean, because ultimately Marquette paid attention. You know how long a league is, 2.42 yeah. 2. miles. miles. You put those two factors together and you have your eureka moment. But it only takes 34 years to get it all. Well, yeah, because I wanted to be sure because, you know, like if you're going to publish or like, you know, if you're a lawyer and if you're writing a brief, you damn well better be right. So that two leagues, then that was the key that, and you knew the portage. It was about five miles. And so what I did, and Jeeper, this was just just (laughs) a couple years ago, and I said, Jeepers, two leagues from the portage. And I took a piece of string and laid it out on a topographic map. I set it on the distance scale. Yeah. And I went two leagues, which is about five miles. And then and then I figured out, well, what is two leagues in the portage? And holy smoke. So you got your I'm, string and your I, map. I'm and... looking for this a butte that's about two leagues from the portage. Yeah. And I What's two leagues? Because 34 years of research, and there it is. This elliptical feature, which on the 1929 map, the height of this thing as measured by aerial photography would have been something on the order of 15 feet. And there were either three or four contour lines The contour intervals are five foot. Maybe your grandpa flew the airplane. 
Perhaps, yes. Those flights were in, I think, 1928. Yeah, he was flying back then. And the name, I found the name of the, it was somebody's aerial service. Well, if it was Monarch uh, Air Service, that was his... uh, I don't think it was Monarch. No, 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 it was the Air Corps. Oh, the Army It was the Army Air Corps. Okay, yeah. It was the Army Air Corps. Yeah, which was um, obviously before the Air Force. (laughs) That's That's what it was, right? That's right. And I found this place. When when I found that thing on the top of my butt, I say I was in tears. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Father, yeah. I have found you. Yes, yeah. I have yeah. found your campsite. Well, it all finally it's matches up. He, right? This is this is this is holy ground. Yeah, yeah. it absolutely. really is. It really is. The ancestors are telling me this. It's a remarkable discovery. And later, like last fall. I was doing research. I figured it was some kind of an Indian mound. I emailed my friend Rochelle Lurie, who was, she did, for instance, all the work at Joliet Arsenal, and she did the new Lenox site, and that's how I met her. Chris, we should break in here. John mentions New Lenox and Ostalon. These are famous Indian mound sites. One's in Wisconsin. Osdalon is South Central Wisconsin. There's a state park there now, and it's a national historic landmark. And New Lenox is in the south suburbs. Between Frankfurt and Joliet, the middle to late Mississippian cultures. The 10th or 13th centuries. And these settlements are similar to Cahokia near St. Louis. And one of the great mysteries is this culture at Cahokia, you had this thriving really metropolis, and it just disappeared. I emailed her and I said, there may be an Indian mound here. What is it? And she, I mean, within hours, comes back an email with a description of a couple of some avocational archaeologists. They had been there Mm -hmm. and they took some measurements and took a look at it and made a rough sketch map in 1999, which she sent. And then they registered the site with the State Archaeological Survey. So it has an official number, which means that that site is now protected. You couldn't even take a teaspoon of earth out of that mound. And that's state law, is that right? Under state law. Yeah. 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 And that's a fairly recent statute. Well, that's good. It's going to protect the spiritual site. Well, these avocational archaeologists in 99 said it was three meters. That's 10 foot, you know, yeah, fairly, fairly close. Mm-hmm. Now, did you talk to them or was no, it a report that they, they did? They're dead. But what these guys in 99, they did not recognize that this is a mound with a ramp leading up to it. Hmm. At least there's nothing in the report I had from Rochelle Lurie. Her information came from the State Archaeological Survey website. I think there's a web page which is not available to everybody. You know, this thing is big. It's like 100 meters long and 35 meters wide and three meters high. What the hell is that? So I thought, well, gee, this mound that big, is it an effigy mound? So I got in touch with the superintendent of effigy mounds, and he says, no, it's it's not an effigy mound. He said, maybe it's a platform mound. And then I found Robert Birmingham, 
the retired state archaeologist in Wisconsin. Yeah. I got his fabulous book, Indian Mounds of Wisconsin. The revised edition just came out. He has a lot of information. And so what I'm reading when I do the research, and there is this village up east of Madison called Aztalan. And it was built by the people that built Cahokia. Oh, down wow. there, St. Louis. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Those and, are humongous mounds. Well, yeah, yeah. These platform mounds, it's like a civic center. It's like the spiritual center. So a platform mound is where the big shots live. <laughs> and they might have a, a kind of a fancy wooden house on top of the mound, and there might be some other features there and so forth. And so this platform mound is like the center, a community center, and these villages are strung along the, this river system. When you made the portage it's between Madison and Frankfurt, part of it is still there. Most, most of it has been built over. Anyhow, then you were in, in what is now called Hickory Creek, but the Indians called it Chicago River. Why did they call this whole river system the Chicago River? I mean, it's two rivers with a portage between them. Yeah. And it finally dawned on me last week. Last week, this platform mound, Chicago, I'm saying, is a place, it's a sacred place. It's like their Vatican. These rivers are the way to. Oh, to that platform mound. To that, that mound, that center, to Chicago. Center. They called the, this whole river system the Chicago River because that was the way you got to Chicago. Yeah. Oh, to Chicago, not from Chicago. To, to Chicago. Chicago. I see. Okay. Where the Indians lived. Well, that's the, and that's of course thirty-four years worth of hard work on my part. <laughs> so then, is the stinky garlic just a coincidence then, or how does it fit in? No, see, when I was researching the etymology, yeah, I found all these dictionaries for all these different Algonquian languages, because the Northern River was called Chicago Memo, part of which was Chicago. You mean through Chicago Th- that's River? Or the, is that... From the Michigan Avenue Bridge. Okay. They call it Chicago Memo, and what it really means is this is not the, the way to, to Chicago. Chicago Memo? Is that... Chicago Memo means like false Chicago. Yeah. What it's telling you is this river does not lead you to the place called Chicago. And in this dictionary, which it was a Jesuit dictionary, started in the 1690s. At Peoria, oh. it's a huge manuscript, and I rediscovered it because it hadn't been used up to that time. Well, I figured out from this dictionary that Mamon would mean imitation or false or deceptive or mistake. Faux, In other words, like we would say, faux. Yeah, exactly. Like faux Chicago, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Exactly. In other words, this river doesn't take you to Chicago, right? 
So if that's where you want to go, don't take this river. Right. And besides, it's a crummy river with a sandbar, and you know, <laughs> it's a real. And the part is You can take it if you want. It, it, right. It's a, it's a real well. local. It's a dive. <laughs> Chris, when John says Chicago Mama. Yes, the, the Kaskaskian work. Fault Chicago and referring to the Chicago River and that route to the Des Plaines. That really references the Franklin map of 1684. And that's written like where downtown Chicago is today, like on Lake Michigan. Yes. Okay. And then below it is a word that means Twisted River, Calumet, Little Calumet. And in between the two rivers that it shows on that southern route is Chicago. Chicago. Yes. Okay. And it's calling both those rivers that Chicago River. So it helps explain John's hypothesis that that mound is Chicago and those yeah. rivers are the way to Chicago. Yeah, that's the place called Chicago. Right. And we put a link on our website for people to take a look at the Franklin map and you can zoom in on the Chicago area. That it's written Chicago Momo. Yes. LaSalle, see, he was a financial disaster. He stiffed everybody. (laughs) Serial bankrupt. That was the, at least the ostensible reason for desertions and ultimately his murder. Because he was bushwhacked out by Nacogdoches. And the guy that killed him with a shot between the eyes was apparently a um, disappointed investor. Uh, He'd put a considerable amount of his personal means into the trip, and he wasn't getting anything out of it. And, of course, LaSalle managed to get both of the boats wrecked in the process of navigating toward shore. So, you know, there went the colony... And then they recently found it, you know. So, Patrick, Nachadocious, while it is a, a place in Texas, it sounds like a delicious Mexican meal, doesn't it? Nachodoshis. Sort of like a dessert, right? Yes. And it's about 130 miles north of Houston. It has to do with LaSalle's expedition in 1684. They really could have used a GPS because <laughs> they mistakenly sailed to the Texas coast and were shipwrecked. And I believe they built Fort St. Louis. And the colony that Swenson mentions near um, current day Isnez, Texas. So they're desperate. They're going to try to bushwhack on foot from Texas to Illinois. In the fall of 1687, Jutel gets to this place with these guys. And LaSalle's crooked brother, who is a priest, not a Jesuit, he's a Oh, because that's right, because LaSalle didn't work with the Jesuits. Was he hated them. To them. Yeah, he took the church. I preliminary remember. orders in the Jesuits, and then he, he gets it, tired of the discipline. So they're hoping to get back to Canada, as you tell. He says, well, they call it Chicago because of the wild garlic that grows here. But as they're taking all this time exploring, because they got to wait for the ice to go out on the lake. Yeah, yeah. See? So they're camping there at this place called Chicago. Because he heard LaSalle talking about Chicago because, remember, LaSalle had a fort built, he says, at the portage of Chicago. Mm -hmm. It was fairly near it. I think it was on the Hickory Creek side. 
Okay. And it was sort of like a depot where he could cache things. and. Well, he had to be on a river that was deep enough to float a boat. Yeah. So I figured his little fort was probably pretty near to the New Lenox site, mm. which was a big Indian village. Mm-hmm. Jutel describes the landscape at and around this place he called Chicago, the streams and, and lots of trees, so forth. Well, that didn't fit the the northern river. Yeah, the Chicago River Portage. Because what you've got here is, as a result of the glaciers, you have a, a very subtle continental divide mm-hmm. that runs through the Chicago area. Yeah, separating the Great Lakes and the Mississippi watershed. Yeah. See, Jutel and, and Joliet didn't mention the lake at the portage, whereas on the northern route, there was Mud Lake. Yeah. The Oak Point Lake. Right. It's obviously not the northern route. So, Chris, John says, Jutel doesn't mention the lake. And this is yet one more independent confirmation. They're down on that southern route, not on the northern route. And there's no mention of a mud lake in his account. Exactly. Right, because it's a significant lake. It's an elongated large lake from Carlham Avenue to Central to Pulaski. It stretches five to six miles, depending on how wet the season is. And it wasn't always passable. I mean, there were times when it was just swamp. It's too significant not to mention. And so here's Jatel, who is the chronicler for LaSalle, on that failed expedition. And and who doesn't miss much. Right, because he's the one that says why Chicago has its name. And so first Marquette and Joliet, now Jatel is telling us that Chicago, you go through that southern portage through the Calumet into Butterfield Creek and then across the the short portage to Hickory Creek. And and the clue, of course, was maple trees, which make maple syrup, which Jutel made in 1687 at the place called Chicago. Ah. See, because Jutel came back in the spring, and the Indians typically ate all the food. You know, Indians would Mm. gorge and starve. But they were traveling with a supply of parched corn, which is standard travel food in those days. And, okay, how are we going to make our sagamite, which is like a stewed whatever sagamite is, would be a stew of any any sort. Well, cook it in maple syrup. So they tapped, they tapped the maple trees, <laughs> yeah. and then they boiled it down, and then they cooked their corn in it, and that's what they ate. Fast forward, 2017. I said, wow, I wonder what's there. So I got on Google Maps. I identify this place, and it's Spirit Trail Park in Olympia Fields. And it's a nature reserve. I get in touch with the park district, talking to Eric Darwell, who is in charge of buildings and grounds. Because I asked Eric Darwell, why did you call it Spirit Trail Park when they 
got it actually from the village of Olympia Fields. Yeah. He said, well, the understanding in the community is, is an Indian burial ground. Yeah. Well, maybe. It's got to be a sacred site because platform mounds are built on sacred sites. And those platform mounds weren't necessarily burials. Right. But it was a center. It was a sacred place. Yeah. And as as you discussed about etymology, I mean, there's usually a grain of truth somewhere sure. in the origin of, of a particular place. Or And also I've learned studying history that once something is named, very hard to get rid of that name, even yeah. though it's been conquered. Like yeah. the West California, every town is Spanish, and they haven't been there for a long time. Los Angeles. San right. Francisco, San Diego. It's got a name about that long in yes, Spanish. Yes, right. Anyhow, that, that would be a destination for people for a big gathering. Right. And he sent me a couple of pictures he'd taken just from the road because it's Olympia Way, which is kind of an extension of like Kedzie, something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he shot through the trees. So thinking about a habitat for ramps, which was why that place is called Chicago. And as you tell in 1687, 88, is describing how these guys were here at this place called Chicago, which they learned was because the ramps grow there, because Chicago is the Indian name for ramps, and skunk, too. For the stinky garlic. Well, no, that's a shorthand misleading reduction. But in any event, the ideal habitat for ramps would be something like a a maple basswood forest. So I asked him, well, are there maple trees on this? Oh, yes, he said, maple and cherry. The conditions would be right for ramps to be growing there. And that would match up with LaSalle's chronicler, Jutel. Jutel. His his description, yes. And can ramps be found there today at the right season? This I didn't know. I asked Eric Darwell, Tim, and he he didn't know what ramps were. Sure. So no, Nobody's perfect. Right. <laughs> but I said, are there any sugar maples growing in there? He said, yep. <laughs> I said, and when Eric Darwell says, there are maple trees on that guy. I said, yeah. I, I was in tears. Yeah. yeah. Just one more piece. It, it's, one more confirmation. It, it is. It was their Vatican. Yeah. It was their destination. When it was built, and it was built probably around around 1100, and it was built by the same people that built Cahokia and built Aztalan, and also up at Trempolo. We're talking a lot of labor here, because I mean, oh. I've walked those mounds in, uh, down near yeah, St. Louis, yeah. and they're unbelievably tall. Yeah, yeah. Those people, they would have been kind of related to the Sioux. Mm. They were probably the people that became known as the Winnebago. Okay. And that's another story which we're going to get into. But then they moved on, maybe under pressure from some people moving in from the East, and you know, Indians were peaceful sometimes and were like other times. And if they had some 
reason to conquer their neighbors. Maybe they would, and the, the newcomers might not have the cultural context sure. that would explain why this mound was important. So it just part, became part of the landscape. But they must have known that this was a sacred place because even in the 21st century, the local lore was that this it was maybe an Indian burial ground. What we're hearing in this legend is that this was somehow sacred. With Father Marquette, that mound had probably fallen into disuse. Yeah, yeah. And the Indians, they probably didn't, this was maybe not part of their culture. Right. See, but they knew that somehow this was sacred. Hmm. My guess is Marquette would say, not take me to your leader, but take me to your spiritual center. Yeah. And as a religious man, I mean, he would be sensitive to that. Oh, boy. Yeah. And the Indians would be sensitive to that, too. Right. Yeah. So you've studied Native American cultures and what makes All them sacred life. to them. Or what, well, what let me give you a, a thumbnail of Indian cosmology. Yes. Which is that there are three layers of your universe. There is the part on the ground where you live and make your livelihood. And then there is what's beneath you, which is where the ancestors are. Okay. The ancestors, by the way, in the creed, we talk about the communion of saints. We see it. We say it. You know, we believe in it. Now, it's real. Most of us just mouth the words. And the Indians knew about it. Most cultures know about it. Okay. Same, same concept. Sure. Just different words. Right. And then the sky above, and then there would be like maybe a constellation or something like that or some other astronomical phenomenon. So you have this three-layered cosmology. Chris, so we're here at the Waveland Island Studios. We finished the first two episodes with our interview with John Swenson. You know, Patrick, when you asked me to join you on this podcast, I didn't realize how much work it would be. Chris, nor did I. <laughs> I thought it would be simple. We'll start at the beginning. We'll work with the entomology. We'll talk to John Swenson. Talk to John Swenson. And we're back to that 10-cent word that you love. Historiography. Yes. And it, it, I'm still blown away by what we learned this fire hose of history from John Swenson. And sort of the question becomes, why now? Why Swenson? How is it that he's uncovered this history that feels so revolutionary? Well, you know, we've been thinking about this and pondering it, and I, I come back to that word historiography, which means the study of writing history, how you do history. And you and I were talking about how the father of historians in Chicago history is Andreas, right? He's written a three-volume set on Chicago history. Okay, so it came out in 1881. Nothing really changed, right? There was no new history being written about Marquette Joliet and the, the founders, uh, Point de Sable and all that. There wasn't anything new stuff, right? Typically, most people went 
back to those texts, there's Pierce is another one. The, and the first history written about Chicago is 1840, at least in, in English. And, and there's the Parkman. Parkman is another one. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the Wisconsin Historical Society has a very prominent role in telling the, that early history. The Waits, Draper is another one who actually goes out and collects a lot of this Midwest history and a few others. But Swenson does go back to the original French journals. Well, that, that's what I was saying is the last real deep dive on Chicago history, the origins, was Chicago in the Old Northwest by oh yes um milo quaif the 33 world's fair was the catalyst to say hey let's compile this chicago is going to be a center of this amazing world's fair and let's get the history down yes and do a complete look at the history from the beginning of chicago up through the 1930s right and so there was displays at the 33 world's fair of marquette's cabin of point de sable's Fort Dearborn was re- rebuilt there. Right. So, and it got people excited about Chicago history. But obviously, there hasn't been major work done since then. And since the 1930s, you didn't have the internet. Going and, back to the 1880s, Andreas did not have access to the Jesuit relations. I think it maybe came out in the early 1900s. Yeah. The, the volumes, the spectacular volumes in English and French. That's that, that's the weights. And so one yeah. page is in French and the other page is in English. And it's... 72 volumes. Yeah, unbelievable collection. And so this was not available to these early historians. Also, perhaps because of their Eurocentric, Anglo-ethnocentric ways, they didn't probably think that Indians or Indian narratives mattered, or Indian languages? There would definitely have been a different perspective on Native Americans, for sure, at that time, 1800s, early 1900s, and probably not crediting Native American culture or uh, intelligence or capabilities as well as today we are more, I think, appropriate with that. So you say, well, why John Swenson? Well, Well, Swenson takes a deep dive as a historian and as an attorney. So he's looking for primary sources. So he literally goes to the beginning, the Jesuit relations in Paris, which one can access on the internet and reads it in French in 18th century French, which he understands, which is different. And he keeps referencing the fact that he's got these French dictionaries that go back and give you the definition in the 17th century, not 18th or 20th century. It's words shift. Yes. Meaning shift. Yes. So Swenson's able to access the documents unavailable to Andreas. Number two, he has access to floodplain surveys. The maps. uh, and Maps, aerial photography done in the 20th century. Wouldn't have been available to most of the historians. Not available. Also, he had access to that Kaskaskian Dictionary from Peoria, I think it was 1691 or so, that Swenson actually paid to have microfilmed. That he found at the Newberry Library. Newberry Library. So now that's where we learned about the Chicago Montmartre or the fake Chicago. Again, this is a pursuit of knowledge using 21st century techniques to rethink history written in the 1880s. Well, and to spend 35 years on it, his training as an attorney and the importance of documents and people writing them and what context you put them in, are they a good witness or not? And one of the other things 
because we've had some controversy with the Chicago Portage Group. That some pushback they, a little they've bit. had some definite pushback because it changes their history. But it certainly could not have been done by Andreas writing in his three volumes. He he did not have access to this these primary sources. Right. That's the trouble with history is if an error occurs in a secondary document and then scholars start referencing it and footnoting it, then pretty soon the error has become the established history. Exactly. And that makes sense now that he's at a time and place and has the right approach, skills, and mentality to bring out this history in a way that could not have been done by almost anybody else. And I go back to when Swenson said that Father Marquette on March 29th, 1675, on that faithful day when the water rose 12 feet and they ran up this small butte. Isolated hill. Isolated hill in 18th century French. Well, we were on the mound. That's a perfect description for what that is. Right. So as Swenson would say, details matter. Yes. A league is a certain set distance and to not know that means you don't know where you're looking. So it's all this vast contextual fabric that he's gone to the depth to understand, be able to put these pieces together, catching his own mistakes sometimes, picking up biases of secondary sources, and then discredit those. Details matter. So it explains too why we've got hit with such a fire hose of history because he knows all these nuances and the whole fabric of the context. It's hard for him to just give a few highlights and explain the history. Well, that's why it takes 35 years to pull all this together because it's all this disparate amounts of information and that at the time may not seem relevant. And then you see it as a whole and creates a new history. So it's baffling, Patrick, that why don't modern scholars today, besides John Swenson, why why do we just accept the narratives that were given, written by people 150 years ago, and not challenge it? I debate that myself as a historian. I think what I catch myself doing is, because those people are often closer to the time that they're reporting on, I give them a fair amount of credence in what they're doing. Yet, as we've discussed, we have much more powerful tools to gather information together and then potentially present it in a way that reveals a new and hopefully more accurate history. Well, and then you talk about narratives like by Gordon Hubbard, who actually canoed the portage, the Northern portage on some fur training trips. Obviously you take those seriously, right? Because this is someone who who actually did it, but I, I can guarantee you that Andreas never canoed the Chicago portage. Right. You know, from his lofty perch in gilded Chicago. Well, it's invaluable as a historian to go back to the original documents. But then also visiting that mound a couple times, which we will share in the next and third episode entitled Herbs in Orto. Really powerful in doing the podcast and talking to John. You get a sense for what you're talking about in a much different way a more pragmatic and hands-on way when you actually go and walk or paddle or travel to the places where these events occurred. Right. Especially a part that has been left pretty much alone 
because obviously the Illinois Michigan Canal and the Sanitary Canal District, I mean, uh, m- much of, of this world was obliterated by these new immense projects. Those projects remade the land between Chicago and the Illinois River. Right. Then to find Marquette's campsite, which is pretty much left alone, is just, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary that there's an Indian mound in Olympia Fields. If you go to the Encyclopedia of Chicago and you look up Olympia Fields, it states in black and white that Indians never lived there. Again, another... Well, we know that's not true. Right, right. But it's written down. It must be true, right? It's written in a book. Yeah. I, what, do you, <laughs> what do you do? It's uh, Well, you write another book or you create a podcast. And we'll see how this will change how people approach history and how people look at Chicago's origin story. If anything, it's good to just question established narratives. How do you know this? Or why is this true? Be a rebel about it. Say, well, who says this is true? So the point is, foundational history is like a China vase. You can't touch it. You can't change it. can't move it. And John Swenson said, let's pick it up and throw it in the air and look look under it and move it around. And he just, he challenged the orthodoxy by asking questions. And the hard work, because it's very easy to have an idea of what you're looking for, go to these original texts find it and not look any further. Right. So I think that's the inspiration I come away from it is don't be afraid to challenge, look at primary sources, try to think why was this written? Who are they writing to? As John said, what's this about? If you're writing to your boss, is it going to be the same as if you're writing to your girlfriend or something? Try to get the context and that's the other thing that we have to realize is there's not always the smoking gun or a letter or a report that's going to pull everything together. Well, as this we kept joking, as we kept joking with John on and off mic was that oh the videotape got lost. Yeah, exactly. If we all had the luxury of time and money, maybe all our history should be rewritten every hundred or so years because time for a set of fresh eyes to look at the material. So it's been an amazing journey to just present these first two episodes and interview John Swanson, where we started out simply wanting to share the entomology of the word Chicago, and now this deep dive into Chicago's potentially new origin story. Yes. So thank you, uh, John Swanson, for allowing us to share a spot on this amazing ride. And we appreciate you, the listeners, sticking with us because we know it's it's a lot of information and we have a hard time keeping our, our minds wrapped around it. So we hope you'll appreciate the episodes. And the nice thing is that as a podcast, you can listen to them multiple times. At your leisure or like I do, washing dishes. <laughs> a third episode, which will follow. And you came up with a name for that. Herbs and Orto. Yes, and we will reveal that episode next month. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. This concludes episode two, The Place Called Chicago. That That one felt pretty good. That was good. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson, 
for the idea and branding assistance, and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.